This is an ABC News special. Race for the vaccine. Operation Warp Speed. We will deliver by the end of this year a vaccine. This process has gone incredibly well. We could have safe and effective vaccines and not enough people want to get those. If Donald Trump tells us I should take, that we should take it, I'm not taking it. Let's end the politics and follow the science. This is the moment the nation has been waiting for. This is it. This could be the beginning of the end of this ordeal that we're in. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. The post hit the internet in early January on an obscure medical website with little fanfare. China revealed the genetic code of the novel coronavirus. For the world's scientific community, this was the gunshot at the starting line. From that first moment when I heard about this novel coronavirus, you know, I knew scientists across the globe were going to get to work to, to figure out a path to a vaccine. That viral sequence, said Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith at Yale, contained the critical information. Almost immediately, the National Institutes of Health mobilized a team of researchers, led in part by Dr. Kizzy Corbett. When the genome was published on January 10th, I was home and I got an alert on uh, my phone and um, my immediate reaction was go. Dr. Corbett leaned on a collaboration that preceded the pandemic between the National Institutes of Health and the Boston-based biotech firm Moderna, where Hamilton Bennett is in charge of vaccine development. By January 21st, when there was the first case in the U.S., we had just aligned on what our, what our vaccine would look like. So when that first case happened, we said, we need to move much faster. Clearly this is coming, it's coming to the states, it's coming to major cities and ports of entry. Similar efforts began in Europe and Asia. This was still January when most of us were not paying attention to COVID-19. And yet this small group of scientists was at work in labs around the globe to identify a potential vaccine for something that most of us didn't know would become a problem. We weren't racing against each other, we were racing against time. Dr. Anthony Fauci, the Director of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. What it really is a reflection of, of years of fundamental basic and applied science, which led to technological advances that have allowed us to do in weeks to months what would have taken literally several years, a decade or more ago, to go from the identification of a perfectly new and previously unidentified virus in January of 2020 and have vaccine ready to administer to people in December of that same year is, is like unimaginable. And yet, the first three million doses were shipped from a Pfizer warehouse in Michigan to 145 locations around the country. An applause broke out at Long Island Jewish Medical Center, where registered nurse Sandra Lindsay received the first shot publicly administered in the United States. I've worked on the front lines for months alongside my colleagues who worked tirelessly to put an end to this pandemic. And so this signifies a step in the right direction to end this pandemic. A victory, finally, in a country that has already seen more coronavirus deaths, 300,000, than any other. The idea that you get one that's 94 to 95% efficacious was really almost beyond imagination. That is about as good as it gets. 
that's almost as good as the gold standard. And the gold standard is measles. And the measles vaccine is about 98% effective. And we're almost there with this, which means that if we properly and widely implement the distribution and acceptance of the vaccine, we could crush this outbreak very similar to what we did with smallpox, with polio, and with measles. So on the one hand, we're going through a terrible ordeal with record-breaking numbers of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, yet we have within our means now the ability to turn it around completely purely on the basis of scientific advances. Science and ingenuity, along with masks and soap, have been among the best tools to fight the pandemic. COVID-19 has coincided with advances in genetic technology that helped the scientists move faster. By understanding the genome and the different parts of that organism, you can create from scratch a vaccine without running the risk of having to inject into some, somebody a living organism. And that's very, very different. The, the availability of this genome allowed those researchers who'd been working in very new vaccine areas, new, with new technologies, to very quickly produce uh, a, a prototype of a vaccine that they could test in animals and begin safety testing in humans. Dr. Richard Besser, head of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, former director of the CDC, and our former chief health and medical editor here at ABC News. We still have a long way to go in terms of vaccines turning around this pandemic. But if we're able to pull this off, this will be one of the most monumental public health achievements of our lives. Within months of China releasing the virus's genetic code, 130 vaccines were being studied, including two promising candidates from Moderna and Pfizer using an approach called messenger RNA. The messenger RNA strategy is not new. I mean, it's been around for many years and, and there have been a number of systems, a number of germs, pathogens that people have looked at with the messenger RNA strategy. It's just sort of come to this moment, however, where we have enough information about messenger RNA that we really thought it could work for SARS-CoV-2. And certainly from these early clinical trials, it looks like that was exactly right. It was just sort of the right strategy that came up at the right time. Dr. Paul Offit at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia is on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee that recently endorsed the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that's now being administered. What we've never done before is you give the person the small fragment of the gene that actually codes for that protein. So you inject them with either messenger RNA or DNA, or these so-called uh, viral vectors, which are like Trojan horses that bring that gene into the cell. And then your body makes the protein and your body makes antibodies to the protein. We've never done that before, but we needed that gene sequence in order to know how to do that. The technology moved fast, but experts like Offit didn't think it could move that fast. In March, when Dr. Fauci predicted that it was possible that we could have a vaccine in a year and a half, I thought that was ridiculously optimistic, aspirational, and said that actually in national television, where I've apparently been willing to you know, be wrong again and again. So I think what's happened really is remarkable, uh, unimaginable in many ways. At Moderna, Hamilton Bennett watched the pandemic get worse and worse. Our phase one study was initially expected to begin in April, late April. And when we saw that case in January, we said, that's not gonna cut it. And we moved it in 
to early April and then moved it in again to March. And every day we just accelerated that timeline faster and faster. While Moderna's trial began, Germany-based BioNTech partnered with Pfizer. Well, we were using all possible leverage that we have. We were asking for special permissions. And in many cases, uh, Pfizer has own transportations. They have some uh, airplanes, so we use them. Getting, uh, getting special permissions to move materials. Multiple vaccine candidates sailed through early safety trials and advanced to phase three, large-scale human trials to determine efficacy. I'm Dr. Dan Stepanowski, and I am a volunteer in the Kaiser Permanente Pfizer vaccine trial. Dan Stepanowski, a high school superintendent in California, told us someone's got to do this. You know, back in March and April and May, we were all watching the media and watching the world shut down. And I just wanted to be a small part of the solution. So I was talking to doctor friends at Kaiser Permanente and said, do you guys have a trial? And they said, yes. I said, I want to join. Trial data showed 95% efficacy among recipients of the Pfizer vaccine a week after they'd received the second of two doses. Dr. Fauci remembered the moment he found out. Yeah, my action was one of extraordinary joy. <laughs> uh, not disbelief, I believe the data, but... I was really, I know exactly where I was. I was, I was, it was Sunday evening and I was at my next door neighbors having a um, physically, socially distanced sit down on a Sunday night when I got a call from the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla saying, Tony, are you sitting down? <laughs> Little more than a month later, Pfizer's product is being shipped across the country and emergency authorization for Moderna's vaccine could come as soon as this week. The most ambitious mass vaccination effort in U.S. history is now underway. Three million doses of the Pfizer vaccine arrived in 145 locations and will arrive in hundreds more in the coming days. Ten months after lockdowns began, we have something we have not had enough of this year, hope. Dr. Richard Besser joins us now from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He used to lead the CDC. He was our chief health and medical editor here at ABC News. So let's start with the significance of today, Rich. What an achievement. Yeah, yeah. I, what's happening today is absolutely monumental. The, the idea that we have a vaccine against a new infectious agent, this virus, in less than a year um, I, I did not think this was, was possible. It's not something we've ever accomplished as a scientific community, as a public health community, ever. It's never happened before. Then how did it happen? What, what had preceded this scientifically that, that allowed for this to actually occur today? You know, I, I think some people think that, that the efforts just started this year. And if that were the case, we would not be anywhere close to having a vaccine. Uh, but really, efforts to, to understand coronaviruses, to understand new approaches to making vaccines, that's something that has come about over, over more, than a, more than a decade. And it's part of, of what we do when we give money to the National Institutes of Health. Uh, it's part of what we do when, as a global community, we come together and we share resources and we share in information. Uh, there's so many different pieces of this. You know, if, if as a global community, we hadn't reached an understanding that you share what you know, that you put the genetic material up on the web so that everyone can benefit from it. If that wasn't in place, we would be nowhere near where we are today, which is frontline healthcare workers about to get their first dose of a vaccine that is amazingly effective. So put this in context a bit. 
of medical history? Are we at the dawn of a new day because of what science and big pharma accomplished here? You know, I, I hope so. You know, I spent, I spent 13 years at CDC and, and for four of those, I ran emergency preparedness and response. And the idea that part of our thinking at that, you know, around an emergency could be that, well, we have to take steps, but within a year, there's a good chance we could have the first vaccines uh, against this agent. That, that changes the thinking. It changes what you might want to do as a nation in terms of supporting people during that period, that you could be thinking that this is not an endless requirement of government. Uh, but, you know, it, 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 to me, could potentially change how we think about uh, pandemics, how we think about uh, approaching these kinds of uh, catastrophes when they occur. Any worries today? Oh, tons, tons of worries. Um, you know, my, my biggest worry is that people's excitement about the arrival of this vaccine will lead to the, uh, a false sense that this is over. You know, this vaccine, as wonderful as it is, is not going to change the trajectory this winter of the pandemic. Those people who receive the vaccine, you know, within a couple of weeks of the first dose, will start to have some levels of protection. And after two doses, we'll have high levels of protection. Uh, but the vast majority of people in this country will not have vaccine this winter. And the only thing that will help us this winter is people taking the steps that we know work, which is wearing masks and keeping apart and washing hands, and Congress stepping up and providing support to people so that everyone has the opportunity to protect themselves. Without that, we could see hundreds of thousands of more deaths before this is under control. There has been some skepticism about the, the vaccine, although a new poll from us here at ABC and, and Ipsos showed that people do seem to be warming up to the idea. Has something changed? What's happened? Well, you know, I, I think that as this vaccine becomes reality, and as people start to know people, friends and family members who get the vaccine and understand, yeah, you're going to get a sore arm. You may feel pretty pretty junky after, after your dose of vaccine. Uh, but as people start to see how it changes our thinking about all these restrictions on our lives, that demand will go up. But th that's not all that has to happen. You know, there are, if you think about who's been hit the hardest by this pandemic, Black Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans, these are, are also groups that have the biggest issues in terms of trust. There is, there is a long history in America of medical experimentation, of, of frank abuse. There continues to be differences in terms of how people are treated by, by our medical system based on race and ethnicity. And if we don't invest uh, in efforts so that people in communities are hearing from the people they trust, we could have a vaccine that is highly effective and is highly safe that a lot of people don't want to get because they don't trust the, 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 the system, the government that helped develop this. Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Don't go far. We'll have more questions for you in a moment. This life-saving science cannot come soon enough after such a devastating year. FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn spoke to my colleague Martha Raddatz. Dr. Hahn, great to have you with us as always. At what point can the general population receive a vaccine? How, how does that really work? Do people call up Walgreens? Do they call up CVS? Do you call your doctor? 
So we're going to see that play out um, over the next couple of weeks. Obviously, with the supply that we have right now, it's got to be a, it's probably likely going to be a very targeted approach uh, based upon the recommendations from the ACIP, that committee that that helps with those recommendations and, and what the states prioritize. So um, my, I think I'd be only speculating as how that would happen in individual states. But taking my FDA hat on and as a physician, um, you can imagine that, that through hospitals, healthcare providers, et cetera, there'd be the identification of those who have been prioritized based upon the ACIP recommendations uh, as well as uh, the state's prioritization. And, and, and let's talk about those warnings. The UK is advising people the history of severe allergies not to get the Pfizer vaccine. What do you advise and is there anything that gives you pause at all. So Martha, again, this is why we do a line by line assessment of the data. And I don't know if you saw any of the advisory committee public discussion of this, but um, we did not see um, within the clinical trial uh, significant allergic reactions um, uh, among the subjects of the trial. However, that was seen um, in the UK rollout and distribution. So what we've said, is we, first of all, taking this very seriously, the safety is very important. Um, we've put in our label that those who have any uh, evidence of severe allergy to any component of this Pfizer BioNTech vaccine should not receive it. Uh, however, um, we also, out of abundance of caution, have asked at the distribution sites be available those uh, medicines that might be necessary to address it. Um, so again, because of the clinical trial data, uh, the risk appears to be low, but we need to be very careful about this um, and make sure that uh, we, we administer this appropriately. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the skepticism of the vaccine, no matter how many times you talk about it being safe or, or you've delivered it. Despite reassurances about that, many in the U.S. continue to voice skepticism. Recent polling shows between one quarter and one third of Americans do not want to receive a shot. What kinds of problems do those numbers present? Martha, that, that is a significant problem. I mean, if, if you think about how we get out of this pandemic, um, we have to continue our mitigation efforts right now. That is so important, mask wearing, et cetera. But the way we see light at the end of the tunnel, the way we get through this is to achieve herd immunity. And that means we need to vaccinate a significant number of people in this country, including those who are hesitant. And um, we need to address their fears and concerns. Um, we need to roll this out in a way that um, uh, provides confidence to people. Um, but we also need to be transparent. What do we know? What do we don't know? And our process, this is our contribution to the tra transparency. We want the data to be known. We wanted that advisory committee to be public because we wanted everyone in America, around the world, frankly, to see what information was available and why we made the judgment we made about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. And as you can see, the experts on the panel um, also gave, uh, with their vote, uh, a thumbs up uh, to that authorization process as well. So I think that level of transparency and information helps us. FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn with ABC's Martha Raddatz. Coming up, combating misinformation about the vaccine. How Facebook plans to make sure what you see online is legit. When this ABC News special, Race for the Vaccine, continues. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Listening to an ABC News special, Race for the Vaccine. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. Health workers across the country rolled up their sleeves for shots to protect them from COVID-19 and to start beating back the pandemic. A moment of optimism, even as the nation's death toll reaches 300,000. It is also a moment of decision whether or not to get a vaccination. It's a question we will all have to ask ourselves. Already, the Internet is flooded with misinformation and conspiracy theories about the vaccine. To combat it, ABC's Bob Woodruff tells us now Facebook is combing through posts and removing those that damage or mislead. Aaron, the Internet is flooded with dangerous misinformation. We're seeing misinformation spikes. It's spiked because people are uncertain. And people are taking advantage of the fact that people are uncertain. Claire Wardle has been tracking these inaccuracies since the very beginning of this pandemic. She says these distortions are driven by political and economic motives or conspiracy theories. Certain posts falsely claimed Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine will change people's DNA. So people then take that and go, what? DNA? And then they come up with a false narrative which says it's going to change your DNA. Claims like this are firmly debunked by scientists and have no basis, yet they continue to be shared online, critics say, on platforms like Facebook. Facebook is the largest host to vaccine misinformation among um, social media. Earlier this month, Facebook announced a campaign to remove COVID vaccine misinformation shared by its users on both Facebook and Instagram. We will start to remove misinformation about the COVID vaccine that could lead to harm. In an exclusive interview with ABC News, Vice President of Product and Social Impact Naomi Gleit says Facebook has long warned users of inaccuracies with banners on the site and has removed about 12 million misleading COVID-19 posts since March. But now it's actively searching for vaccine falsehoods. How do you make that determination that something should be removed? 
This is a really difficult challenge. We should not be making these decisions ourselves. That is why we are working with these health partners to identify the claims, these harmful claims that should be removed. It's also why we're working with fact checkers to identify misinformation and reduce it. But according to experts, Facebook and Instagram aren't the only home for misinformation. It's very easy to focus on Facebook and Twitter, and they're the platforms that are discussed a great deal. But actually, YouTube is a real problem. One YouTube video, for instance, has over 15 million views. On this Joe Rogan podcast, conspiracy theorist Alex Jones's invalid claims are going undisputed. So in this video, you've got Alex Jones. He's on a podcast and he's talking about vaccines and he's talking about uh, these concerns about DNA. What he's saying is that this mRNA that is part of the vaccine will somehow be incorporated into the DNA of human cells. But that's just absolutely false. What would be the motivation for people want to intentionally give out this bad information? Sometimes it's to make money. Sometimes it's to drive you to their website where they're actually selling health supplements. So it's in their interest to create a community. Other people are seeking questions for their lives and they have found communities online where people have said, I'll tell you why your life isn't going very well. Making it all the more challenging to combat most vaccine misinformation is shared in close circles online. It's harder to know what's circulating in these groups. And because the messages are being shared by people who know each other, you're more likely to believe it. If you post content that violates our community standards, we will take it down. That's true if you post it anywhere, including in a private group. What do you say to those you know, expert critics out there said you just have done this really too late or too slowly? I would say that this has been a top priority for the company since January. Everyone at the company is working on this in some way. Twitter tells us it has been labeling some inaccurate tweets as disputed information while removing many others permanently. And right now, accurate information is crucial because by the end of this month, hundreds of thousands of Americans will decide whether or not to take a vaccine. Aaron? Bob, thanks. ABC's Bob Woodruff. I want to turn back to Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. What have you heard that's out there and how do we all combat it? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a general pediatrician and, and the, the kinds of concerns that I hear now are very similar to the concerns I hear from my, my patients' parents around any vaccine. You know, the question comes, well, can this give me the disease? Well, no, the, the vaccine against COVID cannot give you COVID. It has no living virus uh, in it. Um, how do we know it's safe? Well, we know it's safe because it was tried in, in trials that are the standard that are used for vaccine approval. Uh, but we need to continue to follow this going forward because this was the fastest approval process in history. It doesn't mean that the, the same questions weren't asked, the same studies weren't done, but, but patients in these studies were followed for a much shorter period than is normally done. So over time, we may find that there are things we learn in terms of safety. Uh, there may be uh, groups of people who received this vaccine uh, that, that have reactions that we hadn't thought about. And that's something that's critically important to, to know. So transparency going forward, letting people know what's being done to continue to study these vaccines and recognizing that pressure is not gonna get people to, to be vaccinated. It's, it's, it's listening, it's understanding people's questions and recognizing that some people may wanna wait and that's not an irrational choice. Everyone's got a difference in, in risk tolerance. Personally, 
Um, I think the vaccine's safe and effective. My parents are both 90, and I recommend that they get it. When my group is called, I'm going to get it as quickly as I can. Uh, and you know, my I, I recommend I'm going to recommend it for my patients' families, not for my patients yet because it hasn't been studied in children, and I'm a pediatrician, so it's not yet approved for anyone under 16. But I, I'll be looking to see the results of those studies so that we'll have a vaccine that everyone uh, in, in America uh, uh, can feel comfortable getting. Our thanks to Dr. Richard Besser, our former colleague here at ABC News, now CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And we asked Pfizer chief Dr. Albert Borla what he would say to someone who has convinced themselves the vaccine is unsafe. No, I think they are wrong. And vaccines in general, they are safe. And vaccines save the world. Since the moment that uh, Louis Pasteur uh, discovered that you can inject uh, uh, kids and protect them from rabies, even treat them from rabies. And uh, since then, the vaccines have become way, way, way more safe and way, way, way more effective. And uh, they have changed the disease heat map of the world. It's such a big mistake. And I mean, it's completely non-scientific, this discussion that vaccines are not safe. And, uh, I, I, but, you know, I'm disappointed. It does seem like Americans are coming around. A new ABC News Ipsos poll found more than 8 in 10 Americans say they would receive the vaccine. They're divided on exactly when. 40% said they would take it as soon as it's available. 44% said they would prefer to wait a bit. High-risk health workers and nursing home residents are first in line for the vaccine. Also near the top in some states, teachers, bus drivers, and countless other essential workers, especially those in the food supply chain. Agriculture workers, the guy who stocks grocery shelves, the cashiers. From Kansas City, E.J. Becker found an open question, though, whether those workers want the shot. Aaron, Dan Scazzaletti has been a store director for Cosentino's Price Chopper Supermarkets for years. As we were talking about vaccines and a possible end to the pandemic, I asked him if he was looking forward to the day when customers would finally stop asking about toilet paper. <laughs> I will look forward to that day, yes. Dan has seen plenty of change in his many years in the grocery business in Kansas City. Perhaps no change as stark as how his customers' behavior has evolved over the past 10 months. They don't want to interact too much. You can just tell people are, are nervous and tense. His workers are too. And both he and a pharmacy director from Oklahoma told me there's a new layer to that nervousness as employees in the food supply chain wonder, should I get the vaccine or not? It's a little mixed. Some people are excited about the vaccine. Well, I think our employees are just representative of the population. Some people are more skeptical. and People are saying, you know, this is a brand new vaccine. We've never given this kind before. I'm hearing both sides of it, actually. And yes, within the population, there definitely going to be some hesitation. Talitha Nichols heads up the pharmacy business for Homeland and United Stores based in Oklahoma City. She told me that while they may have to overcome vaccine skepticism, they have been planning for months, and they'll be ready when the state says the medicine is on its way. It's not getting better, it's getting worse, and when a vaccine does come out, we really need to have everything in place that once we get it, we're set to actually start immunizing people. The government has it set up such that certain places can become closed pods. Jerry Burke recently retired as the head of security for one of the nation's largest grocery wholesalers based in Kansas City. And that means that they have the ability to distribute 
drugs from the national stockpile to their employees. Burke says this is how many essential businesses, like grocery suppliers, will be able to access and distribute the vaccine to workers within hours of receiving it and regardless of hesitancy and skepticism. While the pandemic may have taken many of us by surprise, his company has been working with local and state governments for years, planning how to handle a crisis just like this one. One of the curveballs Burke had to deal with when planning to vaccinate thousands of workers across multiple states became COVID-specific. This vaccine requires an injection instead of simply distributing pills. That, he thinks, will be the next pinch point in the process. Having enough properly trained people to be able to get those injections, because you got to remember what's our most stressed industry right now, and it's the healthcare workers. While Burke thinks drive-through vaccination sites would be the most efficient way to staff a clinic for large companies, retail grocery employees might not even have to leave the store since so many have pharmacies. A lot of this we already have set up because we do flu immunizations and pneumonia immunizations and shingles immunizations every day of the week. And just outside those pharmacies, in grocery stores across the country, managers like Dan Scazzaletti will keep waiting for normal to fill the aisles again. I've known some of these customers for 20 and 30 years, and so you can't go up and hug a customer that you used to hug or, you know, have those handshakes in the aisles that you used to have. So I miss all that. And the unsung heroes of the pandemic will keep stocking, sorting, and sacking so we can all have what we need day after day. Aaron. E.J. Becker in Kansas City. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, is here with us. What happens if someone refuses a vaccine, Jen? Uh, So we haven't heard anything about this yet. I can tell you um, as a practicing physician that that goes through an informed consent process with my patients generally for surgery, but sometimes for certain types of tests or treatment. Um, There's a, a very important ethical principle called autonomy. So my job is to educate Uh, patient as to the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits, options, and alternatives. It's the patient's job to make a decision. Um, And that principle of patient autonomy is at the backbone of our medical system. Uh, So it's really a legal question um, and a government question as to whether or not there will be legislation about this. Um, In my professional and medical opinion as a practicing physician, I will always respect a patient's decision, even if it is to decline or refuse treatment or decline or refuse a certain test, as long as they have been appropriately educated as to pros and cons, risks versus benefits. Should people get this vaccine? I think um, it's important for people to understand that you should really ask four questions. What are the risks of getting it? What are the risks of not getting it? What are the benefits of getting it? And what are the benefits of not getting it? So when you talk about the risks of getting this vaccine, so far the Pfizer and Moderna um, clinical trial data have shown anywhere from a two to 10% incidence of short-term adverse effects or side effects. Um, This is being considered or called reactogenicity of this vaccine. These are of the mRNA technology type where people get fever, fatigue, muscle aches, joint pain, um, kind of a a viral syndrome. They can feel pretty crappy for a day or two. Um, These are being called potentially severe but not dangerous side effects. So a lot of uh, people in the vaccine world are describing this to people as think of this kind of like 
a colonoscopy. You know it's gonna be unpleasant, but you also know it's important and potentially life-saving so you can get through it. And we also have to remember that as you give the vaccine to millions and millions of people, there could be potentially hundreds of thousands of people who experience these side effects. Um, I, I put that under the informed consent category. This is where you need people who are used to communicating risk and benefit to real patients, um, not just you know on a computer keyboard or on paper form. And uh, that's gonna be critically important. Then you have to ask yourself, what are the benefits of getting the vaccine? Right now, we haven't heard anything that suggests that if you get the vaccine, then you can take your mask off and you can walk around um, with reckless abandon, so to speak. So we need more information on that. Um, in terms of risks of not getting it, to me, I think that's really the big thing. We know that about 30% of patients who have COVID-19 experience prolonged and often severe or debilitating side effects. Um, this is known as long haulers or post-COVID syndrome, uh, 30%. So this could be muscle aches, brain fog, pain, um, respiratory or pulmonary conditions, and um, that can be significant. So the risk of not getting a vaccine if you were to get COVID and be in that 30% uh, is significant. I think then you have to talk about you know, the risks to others. Um, a lot of people live with someone who is at higher risk than they themselves are, whether that's parents, grandparents, someone with a pre-existing medical condition, um, and that's significant as well. So uh, those are some of the things that I think people are talking about when you ask risk versus benefit. It's not just what's the risk of the vaccine, what's the benefit of the vaccine. It's really four questions that people need to answer. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton, as a quest to save lives reaches a milepost, a vaccine brings hope, though not yet a reprieve from masks, distance, and heartache. I'm Aaron Katursky. You've been listening to a special presentation, Race for the Vaccine, from ABC News. When breaking news changes the world, ABC News, accurate, credible, and unmatched. On Twitter, at ABC News Radio. Married moms in the suburbs, they've been called soccer moms, they've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.